0: Hi, I'm Doug Plout, and you're listening to Who Doesn't Love Lucy, a podcast celebrating the multi-camera sitcom. You're about to hear a theme song by Nick Searly and Lauren Molina, a group together known as the Skivvies, because they sing songs in their underwear. And let me tell you, their hearts are as warm and open as their bodies are... T- Wait, I can't say that. Hey, you who doesn't love Lucy. It's true, you're gonna see You'll see A sitcom legacy Come on along with me So my very, very first guest is Margaret Reed. Margaret is an actor, director, and coach with a specialty in acting for comedy on film. She's most known for a decade-long run as Shannon O'Hara McKechnie, not Donna, on the long-running As the World Turns and has the distinction of appearing on the first season of Seinfeld. She even shot it before it aired. And the last season of The Golden Girls, among a literally alliterative litany of others. And you guys, she was Blossom's mom. Fun fact. She once played Vivian Lee. She is my dear friend and fellow actor and one of the best scene partners I've ever had. Oh. The one and only Margaret Reed. <laughs> Hi, Maggie. Hi, Dougie. How are you?
1: I'm excellent. How are Ex- you?
0: I'm good. Let's get so right to, to it. so happy you're
1: doing this. Oh, I'm so, so, so happy you. you're here because,
0: let's be honest, I'm, this is my first go at this. I'm scared as hell. <laughs> and so I'm like someone I'm comfortable with. That's really cool. So... My Let's talk about like where you grew up and like how you got into performing a little bit and all that and all that jazz.
1: Okay, I'll try to go as quickly as possible. Oh, no, we're not. (laughs) We don't need to race. Well, I was born in Salinas, California, which is where all your lettuce and carrots grow. Uh, It's called the salad bowl of the world. I love my produce, so that's good. Which is also John John Steinbeck's hometown, so I actually did one of his plays in the basement of his house, which was haunted. The people who lived there said that they would see, like, you know, cabinets opening and shutting and rocking chairs going. But it was called Burning Bright, and that was part of what I did in high school. So I started acting when I was uh, fresh in high school and did a lot of musicals. Camelot, you know, starred in things like that, and Mame, uh, and you know, um, just the best. Yeah, it was. Yes. We had a really thriving community theater there, uh, yeah. outside of school as well. So that's where I started. Then I went to University of California at Santa Cruz, really close uh, to where I grew up, and I majored in theater there. Yeah, and did a lot more theatrical things there. There was really no musical department there. And then I got a scholarship to go to Cornell, and I got my Master of Fine Arts at Cornell in acting. Oh yeah! Uh, yes, it was wonderful. I did many, many roles there, including Kate and in Taming of the Shrew with actor Jimmy. Yes, yeah, so
0: she's not just
1: a funny lady.
0: I know this personally, <laughs> but I but she also has the serious, dramatic chops. <laughs>
1: yes. So yeah, she's m- most of the Shakespeare I did was is, was was co- comedy. I don't think I did any dramatic Shakespeare.
0: Well, well, what is there? You got Lady Macbeth, and then for the female actors.
1: Hmm. Winter's Tale, I mean, you know. Oh yeah, there's and, a lot, I yeah. guess. I don't
0: know. I'm just <laughs> I'm am j- just a noob, I guess. <laughs> uh what a mask.
1: Anyway, I did that with Jimmy Smiths and uh, yeah. then I went to do a Taming of the Shrew again at uh, the Colorado Shakespeare Festival that summer, and that's where I met Michael Kahn and he put me into the acting company and I have the distinction, if I can say this with any modesty at all, of being the first non-Juilliard person in the acting company, which was a company that was started by John Hausman when Patti Lapone and David Ogden Stiers and Kevin Kline graduated from Juilliard, and he was like, we have to keep these people together so he created the acting company, and I was in the 11th year of that. We toured around the country doing classical theater, and that was really my start. Um, So I really pretty much owe everything to Michael Kahn. And how did you
0: (laughs) end up in the television world?
1: Well, after touring with the acting company for a year, I wanted to have my books and things on shelves. (laughs) I wanted to be in one place at one time, and I started pursuing TV and especially soap operas and did Ryan's Hope and some, you know. Things like that. And I auditioned for, I think, seven different contract roles. And I uh, ended up booking Shannon O'Hara, whose real name was Erin Casey. And she came to Oakdale as this free traveling gypsy spirit and Farley Granger. We found out later. Um, Farley Granger. Was my uncle, yeah. Oh, I would rope. have been like
0: Hitchcock, Hitchcock,
1: Hitchcock, Yeah, Hitchcock, the Yeah, you the know, rope, all that stuff. Yeah. So he was, it was wonderful to work with him and to, have, to be related to him on the show. And did lots of kooky stuff. We were kind of like the Lucy and Ethel of the daytime drama. Oh,
0: you tied it all
1: up. And I love Sloan that. Sloan Shelton. Yeah. So we got to do comedy on soap opera, which was very difficult, but it was written by Doug Marland. And they knew how to write back then in the late 80s, so I was very fortunate.
0: So, I want to get to the first show
1: that really popped
0: out. Now, you have a truly, you've literally every every television show that I can think of post, (laughs) you know, post, you know, 1985, I'm like, oh, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there. Not everyone, but But, thank you. Well, a great, great (laughs) many of them, but... You were on the first season of Seinfeld and yes. you have the distinction of being on that show before it really hit into like the zeitgeist and became yeah.
1: the Nobody knew the, what it was gonna become. Yeah. yeah. I was still on As the World Turns here in New York, and they had four shows that aired in March of 1990. And then I decided to take a break from As the World Turns, and I drove out to Los Angeles with my baseball bat and my cat and my car all by myself, my whistle <laughs> in case something happened to me, <laughs> got there safely. And pretty much the first week that I was there, I booked a show called Babes, which was a multi-camera show. And then the week after that, for my birthday, I booked Seinfeld. And it was a really wonderful—it was one of those great— stories where an actor goes in to audition mid-week. They they decided like... Yeah. So what's that about?
0: I mean, I know that here, you know, occasionally episodes will be written and, you know, on single cameras. And nowadays they'll be like, oh, we need another person. So they'll come in and they'll have auditions for different roles. But I wonder what that's like when the week is already in process where things are being staged already. Yeah. Yeah. They're like... Y- you know, yeah. On it, like almost like a theater piece.
1: Right. They were working for two days, and uh, this was actually the second show when they found out they had gotten picked up after they did those four shows in March. And this was October that we're talking about. Yeah. And uh, Nove- November, actually, was my birthday. And they'd already been working for two days. They decided they needed another character to kind of round out all the stories. And there was the Russian cable guys. It was the episode called The Baby Shower. Elaine is having a baby shower for someone while Jerry's off trying to go to a—, a A gig upstate, but he can't because he gets snowed out. So George comes back. I say everything to Jerry that George wants to say to the woman who's having the baby shower at at Jerry's apartment. So I get to like vent at him. And uh, the audition was like the size of this small room. There was Larry David and Larry Charles directing and Jerry Seinfeld. And it was just like, you know, I'm screaming at him in this little room. They have me go wait outside in the hallway. Girls come in and go out and come in and go out. And come was in go Jerry out. in the room with you as the oh, creator? Oh, when with you? Jerry. with Jerry. G- oh, yeah. wow, yeah. yeah. I get in my car after they had me come back in again, and I'm driving off, and my agent calls, says, get back to the set. You have to get, you know, start work right now. So it was one of those dream things, one of those dream days for an actor. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that is... I've gotten
0: one job same day, but I don't know that I've ever... But that seems just so – because all of a sudden you're there and you're starting and everything. It's like when you wake up in the morning, you never know if your dreams are going to come true (laughs) by the end of the day. Exactly. He said.
1: And I really thank my theater training because, you know, I was – we were rehearsing and then we were shooting it 2 days later yeah so it was a it was a big deal and i was out in that parking lot practicing that monologue because i knew that if i forgot even one word you know it would just yeah. it wouldn't be the train wreck that it was and
0: um, had you been aware of obviously not that the show had the premiered but had you Had you been aware of who Jerry and Larry David were?
1: My very first sitcom, I was still here in New York doing uh, um, As the World Turns and had a week off. And I booked a multi-camera sitcom that was here called Everything's Relative. And actually, Marty Kaufman and David Crane wrote on that show. Those are the writers that wrote and developed and now, you know, own or whatever, was friends, uh, yeah. that's their show. And so they were writing on that show. I had no idea who they were going to become. Yeah. So I had already met Jason Alexander because he was on everything. Everything's relative. So by the time I got to Seinfeld in 1990, I already knew him when I got to the set. So, uh, and he remembered me and it was fun. It was, yeah, it was a really fearless time for me, which was awesome. Yeah,
0: that is so, <laughs> it, that's, it, it just seems like the coolest thing in the world. I mean, and the, other, the next show I want to talk about, so obviously I'm skipping over Spin City and Michael J. Fox and everything wonderful. <laughs> but I want to go to the, da-da-da-da, thank you for being a, a friend. friend. Okay, so you were on the last season of The Golden Girls. Yes, I was. Playing pregnant woman. <laughs> yes. So... let's, can you tell me a little bit about that experience? What was was it like to work opposite, I believe it was Pat Harrington you were opposite in that episode? Yes, Pat Harrington of uh,
1: One Day at a Time was doing a guest starring role on on the show that week, and he was playing Betty White's lover. And so we're in a scene, it's called Dateline Miami. Uh, That's the name of the episode. And a number of us come in as his love interests as he's trying to have dinner with Betty White and we you know she's like who's that who's that who's that and so I'm just I'm one of those people and the last person turns out to be male which was a big deal that he that they were introducing any kind of homosexuality you know at at, I think it was 1987 um so uh yeah and I was one and I was pregnant um and so, and I'm and his student, and uh, I wanted to get back with him. I would even dye my hair that color. Is one of the yes, lines, I you even, know, as yeah. I'm looking at Betty White's
0: hair. Yes, <laughs> and and what 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 was the atmosphere like off set? Because I know famously by the end of that seven year run, they all the girls had sort of splintered off into Estelle Getty and Rue McClanahan and Betty White and. BR, they didn't dislike each other, but they had all sort of splintered off into their own.
1: You know what? I've read about that. And yeah. when I got on the set, I, I had no idea about any of that. And it was—they were— so professional that I just didn't even sense it energetically. Of
0: course. Um, uh, did you make a Sue Ann joke to Betty White?
1: No, I didn't, but I did tell her that she reminded me of my mother, which I'm not sure that she appreciated. Thank because, you. <laughs> yeah. But um, I said, only not as funny. Yeah. <laughs> but there was something about her. She kind of looks like her, her mannerisms, some of them. Um, but she was very gracious and wonderful. As I totally
0: me. would have done that and gotten... <laughs> <laughs> and but when i and i i'm i'm sure i would have gotten a million daggers that would have been exciting
1: um, <laughs> no it was great it was a really well oiled machine as was star trek when i was on star trek the next generation 7th yeah. season again just really well you know by by the 7 years they're just you know really well oiled machines everybody knows their place there's really not much anxiety on the set so yeah great. that's that's incredibly
0: just exciting. So now I want to move to something that I think will hopefully be a little educational. Please don't turn this off educational, because I think (laughs) it's important that we address as much as we love these older shows and we want to keep moving forward and keep remembering and watching the entertainment that we loved as children or we loved when we were younger. And You know, stuff that we watched with our families, like the stuff that really formed us and inspired us to get into, you know, show business. And the topic that I think really rings true about your two particular storylines, both in Seinfeld and on The Golden Girls, is that there was a little bit of misogyny in some some of the writing and in some of the ways how it was presented. And it was no—I do want to say this— Maggie and I both spoken about this. It was no one's fault. It was just part of the zeitgeist of the time.
1: Yeah, and I I wouldn't couch it as little bit because I know we we (laughs) don't want to offend people, but there really truly was this this unwitting, unintentional, innate sexism and misogyny in all of writing. I mean, if you look back, you know, before the 1990s, you know when it really started to come ahead, like oh, you really shouldn't treat women like that, like they're second class citizens, you know, or or that the only reason why they're on this show is, is to be somebody's girlfriend or or nag or and it's irritant. So, and or- it's so interesting
0: that e- that, e- that even on a show that was basically led by four, led by four women mm-hmm. in front of the ca- you know in front of the camera that that would still be an issue, but I guess, you know, that's just how it... Yeah. How the world... Oh, yeah,
1: my character on, on The Golden Girls was a pregnant student of a professor. <laughs> One, that's morally, Ding. you know, not so hot. That doesn't... Um, and two, she's been track trying to track him down and finally does track him down and says, listen, I'll do anything. I'll do anything to get back with you. Oh, please, oh, please, man. Please, man, be with, be with me because I can't handle things on my own because you got me pregnant, but please, I need to get back. You know, it's like, there's no way we do a storyline like that these days, I hope. That does not pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> no. no. I, I went all. through actually my IMDb page and I was like, which are these uh, that, are, that would pass the Bechdel test? And actually the Bechdel test is um, a test created by this woman. I can't remember her first name. Allison? It, Allison Bechdel. Mm-hmm. And it's about two, if the two women are talking about something together that's other than um, man, Yes. Um. So it's not necessarily. So some of mine are like we don't talk about a male relationship, but I'm talking to a man (laughs) about something. So it doesn't quite pass the exact Bechdel test. But I was pleased to see that a lot of um. You know, it's it's mainly when my character has a profession, like I played a lot of lawyers, therapists. um, Yeah. But very often I'm mom or girlfriend, boyfriend. I mean, girlfriend or wife. In fact, if you look at my resume now, I'm coming up with. A, I'm going to be in John Turturro's movie, the The Jesus Rolls. I know. And I play Tim Blake Nelson's wife. And if yeah. you look at the top of my resume, it's like all these wife roles. I'm. Uh, I'm in. Gosh, Tom Sizemore's wife in this movie coming up called Central Park Dark, and Josh Mostel's wife in The Amazing Ray. Um, So I'm always, like, related to man somehow. And in my early career and these early shows, especially as the world turns, it was was all, like, sex-based. And that's how I grew up, was, like, that's how I'm going to – that's just who I should be because I have these – so, attributes. And so like, you know, that's what I, that's how I got forward. And I just, I'm kind of embarrassed now. Oh uh, No,
0: well, don't be embarrassed because it was just part of the zeitgeist. It was yeah. part of the zeitgeist of the time. And there's no, when you don't know any better. And, I, and mm-hmm. one of the ways that I do credit social media now and, and you know, sort of the world now is that while while there are a million, you know, detractions to its existence, it is very helpful to sort of understand in greater perception maybe other if you're willing to think openly other perceptions about things because i know that now when certain tv shows are released or certain films are released or there's a play that is you know on broadway or off broadway or sort of in the zeitgeist and there's something that is perhaps not perhaps not not aligning with with morals uh, mm-hmm. you know or treating people with respect. Or treating treating people, women with respect. Treating women or, with respect or any or any historically marginalized population yeah. with respect, I think that with social media we are innately more able to
1: see that mm-hmm. right away. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think we've come so far. I mean, yeah. even just in my, you know, short Kind of a long career since eighty seven. Um, I mean, now I just did Pose, and Janet Mock has been nominated. She's the creator of Pose on FX, and she's been nominated for Emmys. The show has been nominated for six Emmys, and it's about the transgender community it's and the so LGBTQ thrilling. community. It's so, and thr- it's like we would never have even been talking about that. Like I said with the Golden Girls, just the fact that we mentioned that. Pat Harrington's character had a male lover. Yeah. That's was a huge deal in 1987. Yeah. I mean, I I just, I I think it's
0: so, fa- it's just so fascinating. It's so thrilling because who would have thought that even as the world is a dumpster fire now, but who yeah. would have thought, you know, five years ago that there would be a major show on a major cable network. Yeah. That would be critically acclaimed and, frankly, a- awards worthy and awards mm-hmm. nominated. Mm-hmm. That centers around the transgender community and ball culture in the 1980s. Right, that's thrilling.
1: Yeah. And what will really be thrilling is when we stop talking about it as that and we just talk about it telling good stories. Agreed. You know, but I think it needs to be mentioned that it's created by that uh, group of people and that it's about their storylines.
0: And I think that speaks to the power of television that has always existed and maybe even existed a little bit more Back in the back in you know the fifties or sixties when everyone was watching the same thing,
1: mm-hmm.
0: like you know in I I don't know when you were growing up what Leave shows it Beaver, Leave
1: It to Beaver, Leave to
0: Beaver, and you Yeah, My Dream of Jeannie
1: and
0: it, You yeah. know it's so interesting. I want to go back to the Bechdel test for okay. a second <laughs> because I was thinking about I Love Lucy in the Bechdel test,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: I Love Lucy passes the Bechdel test, <laughs> and that's one of the first. Yeah, it's one of the, because Lucy and Ethel would speak to each other all the time about things other than their husbands. They would odd schemes. Odd schemes involving random things, and a kid, they maybe wanted to meet a movie star, and maybe mm-hmm. they want to do this. And while there were a lot of, I'll say, housewife tropes on yeah. st- on stuff like that, mm-hmm. it did also. They also both gave to their husbands as good as they got, as good as their husbands gave that's to true. them. That's
1: true. That's true. And I
0: think that's what set up the sitcom as being something that was that the whole family genuinely enjoyed. Mm-hmm it became family friendly because the whole there was a the perspective of the whole fam, the whole family unit mm-hmm. within the art form. Mm-hmm. So, I want to go to some fun games okay. right now. So, are you a Mary or a Rhoda? I'm Mary. You're a Mary. Yeah. Hats hats in the air. Oh yeah. And you don't care.
1: No. All right.
0: <laughs> <Totally>. Rock on. <laughs> Yeah, no. Rest in peace to both of them. I was thinking about them so, so, so so much. If you've never seen the show, I will say one of the things that I will be doing throughout many episodes of this podcast is being like, this is where you can see this. So you can see the Mary Tyler Moore show streaming on Hulu or if you have Amazon Prime. I'm unsure if it's currently streaming on Amazon Prime, but I do know that you can buy each episode of all seven seasons for one ninety nine, mm-hmm. which I think is it, it, if you've never seen one of the great sitcoms, that's probably the one of
1: great one. To it's start. just it's yeah. just
0: one of the, it's just one of the most incredible ones. Yeah. So, what is your favorite strong
1: female characters?
0: So, what is your favorite television situation comedy of all time?
1: You know, i I thought you might ask me that, so yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to be prepared for it and.
0: Maggie I, is like the most amazing. I did a I did a <laughs> great new play with her this summer called Sequence, and
1: Hi, Ar- Aaron Lacra.
0: Aaron Lacra, wonderful. Hi Aaron, please Hi, Aaron. listen to this. <laughs> Subscribe, like incredible us on I- like, playwright. Us, like us on iTunes. Um, <laughs> we and love incredible you. playwright, one of the best directors I've ever worked with in my entire life. Me Hi too. Marshall, Marshall Paulet, and I know your work ethic, and I know. How extraordinary it is! So you're just you're always prepared.
1: (laughs) I have my notes sitting here in front of me. That's what you're referring to.
0: (laughs) I I took the long way with that one, but uh,
1: so I I looked at at lists of of sitcoms, and you know what? I I am not going to pick one of the classic ones. I'm going to pick something that's still on the air right now. Mm -hmm. It's called Mom. Yeah. And the reason why I think it's one of the most brilliant sitcoms is, one, because it's multi-camera, and I have a fondness for multi-camera. Um you me uh, both. Because if you know the difference between multi—I I teach sitcom and, and multi-camera sitcom and s- single-camera sitcom. And I could go on and on and on about that, but
0: uh, on the on the iTunes link, you will see a link to her website where you can sign up for her classes. <laughs>
1: um, um, but a multi-camera is is very is much more like theater. You you rehearse for a week and then you shoot one night, and uh, so, and you have, there's an audience in front of you. So Mom is a Chuck Lorre show, mm-hmm. and I think Chuck Lorre is brilliant at the multi-camera uh, format. He knows what he's doing with his, you know Two and a Half Men, but now he's also branching out into Young Sheldon, which is a single camera show, and also The Kaminsky Method. He's done so many other multi-camera shows. But the reason why I like Mom the Best is one, because it's female-led, but also because it's about, he manages to have a show about alcoholism that's funny. <laughs> and yet he he goes to really dark places. People die on the show. Um, you know, people break up in relationships. But he man, he knows how to write it so it's it's funny as well, and, and you know.
0: And is there anyone who hasn't, in their lives, been touched by that issue either directly themselves or by someone who they know and love? I don't think there are many people who haven't. Yeah. So
1: I think yeah. to make that funny is a gift. Yeah, and it's very. It's, so it's the socially relevance, socially, social relevance of it, but also you know, the brilliant Alison Janney is is on it, who's yeah. won an Emmy for it. Well, it starts with the writing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think probably the, one of the greatest gifts of of situation comedy is that it truly is about the situ- about commonplace situations.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And I think that when you can take a commonplace situation that maybe in real life might be very painful when when you experience and you can find a way to teach it how to be funny, mm-hmm. I think that is just I think that that might be the greatest gift yeah. overall. That situation comedy gives America yeah. because we have jazz, apple pie, musical theater, and situation comedy. <laughs> and I think that's what America does well. Yes. Sidebar, so I was listening to a podcast with Jim Burroughs this morning, and he said Chuck Lorre is his favorite showrunner today.
1: Yeah, he did <laughs> say Interesting. That. James Burroughs is a world famous director yeah. on Friends, I mean, practically any show that you'd wanna see, but he, he also specializes pretty much in the multi camera shows. Yeah. Yeah. So if Chuck Laurie came to you tomorrow <laughs> and said, Maggie, I want to build a
0: whole show all around you. <laughs> what would that look like? What, do you have a plot line in mind? Do you have fellow series regulars, uh, a setting, uh, who would direct. uh, Chuck Lorre would obviously be the showrunner.
1: Well, you and I would star in it. Oh, well, there we go. Oh, goodness. I get my health insurance for the next
0: million years. Thank goodness. That's really why anybody acts.
1: Uh, I'd have to say it would have to be like a, a show kind of like Mom. Where it wasn't just totally dependent on me making the show happen, it would be an ensemble of great characters, and I don't know what it would be about. I don't I, I would need some time to think about that. But when I was thinking before like if, if of any show in the past that I kind of felt an affinity toward, it was Morgan Mindy like that he was like, Robin Williams was like, was like the, you know, funny everything. Gary Marshall actually put the fourth camera on a sitcom set because Robin Williams was so unpredictable and they didn't they couldn't follow him with just three cameras. So that was the beginning of all four cameras being on set. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. So I've been told. But uh, Pam Dauber was just kind of the straight person to him. Yeah. And that's kind of where I felt comfortable, you know, that he would be... Like it'd be a lot of responsibility for the other actor and you know, just feeding them. I don't know, being the straight person. I don't know I don't yeah. know why, but I felt comfortable doing B. that. The
0: Arthur starred in several television there you shows go. being the straight person. Yeah, there we go. Right? So I have two other questions. Okay. Now this is tangentially related to sitcometry, <laughs> but you played once upon a time, you played Vivian Lee. Oh yes. And I think it's important to acknowledge what it must be like playing playing a very, very famous actor from the past because that's a whole part of the mission of what we're trying to do here at Who Doesn't <laughs> Love Lucy. <laughs> so what was it like to play Vivian Lee in Orson's Shadow by... Austin Pendleton, Pendleton. directed by David Cromer.
1: Directed by David Cromer. Um, It was 2005, Mm -hmm. uh, down at the Barrow Street Theater here in in, uh, New York City, and I actually got to play Joan Plowright and Vivian Lee at different points. So I was very fortunate to be able to work on both of their (laughs) lives, trying to get their mannerisms. My my body type was much more like Joan Plowright's than um, uh, Vivian's, so it was like I... I kind of felt uncomfortable playing Vivian physically because of my upper region yeah. <laughs> near my <Yeah>. shoulders, <laughs> um, yeah. which was a, a just physically different than she was. Trying to get her cadence—I mean, talk about the research. That's one thing I love about being an actor: is is the research that we get to do and like delving into them. And I'd written, I had read biographies about her even before I got the play because I love her. So it was a great responsibility. But Austin. Was at rehearsals, and so was was David Cromer, and they were so generous and warm and welcoming of ideas and helpful with yeah you know how they wanted the play to be and and,
0: uh, and I, you know Austin and I have done did a movie together yeah and, uh, so I know he's old school he's been in everything and David yeah. I know David is very much his mindset is very much of what he watches when he goes home is you know right. he'll watch. Yeah. You know, thanks, Facebook, for educating people on things that you shouldn't know. Um, <laughs> okay, so I want to play a little game, if we can, and okay. then we'll close out. All right. Six Degrees of Lucy. Can you connect you yourself to Lucille Ball b- based on who you've shared the screen with? I can do it for you. I
1: know. You. I've started looking at, like, the older actors I've worked with, and I— you know, like I said, Farley Granger, Dick Van Dyke. That was one of the the early shows that I did. It was a pilot inside Jake and the Fat Man. That that TV show it was a pilot for Dick Van Dyke's show that came a about backdoor after that. pilot,
0: they call it, which sounds yeah. really dirty and it's not.
1: Uh, <laughs> um, so it was within that format, and it became Diagnosis Murder. And I was a nurse, so um, it passed the Bechdel test. In that regard, however, I d- did manage to sneak in a kiss. I got to kiss Dick Van Dyke. So I'm thinking Dick uh, Van Dyke has to be connected somehow.
0: Melting. Oh well, I can. Here's how I did it for you. because okay, Here's a little. Here's a little tip. If you want to get yourself to Lucille Ball for this game, future <laughs> podcast guest, and anyone who would want to do this, find the find anybody who was ever on the Carol Burnett show. Oh, there you go. Because Carol Burnett ran for 7 years had a different major guest star every week, all of them headed various TV shows. There are a great deal of them. So Betty White. She was course, on the show. Of course. Yeah. Was was on the Carol Burnett show many many times. Oh, so I'm like 2 degrees. Yeah, and Ooh. Lucy and Lucy was on the Carol Burnett show and Carol Burnett was on the Lucy show, I think. <laughs> and so, okay. We're all much closer. And Austin has
1: probably worked somehow close to her. Well,
0: you know what's so funny? Well, okay, you know, I'll tell the story because he said he can't do the podcast. I emailed him and I asked him to do it and just to talk about, uh, and he thought I w- the podcast was only about Isle of Lucy. It's not. Mm-hmm. He said, well, I was never on the Lucy show. And I was like, no, 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 no. It's about all, you know, cl- all people who are versed in the multi-camera world. And he said, Oh well, I only did like a day on Good Times, and I don't remember it. So, or you know, or
1: comedy or film comedy and TV comedy. But
0: it's and it's all the same thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I think. I mean, I just think, and I think it's so important that as we remember that, you know, mom is out there and these things are out there. But overall, it's sort of like soap operas; they exist, but you know, we need to make. I think we need more multi-camera.
1: Oh God. Because I think awesome
0: the greatest thing, and this especially is especially here in New York. Here, and well, first of all, the working lifestyle for an actor is incredible. Yes. You know, with the five-day schedule, yes, and it's very easy, and you know,
1: it's so fun.
0: Yeah, I was talking to Ellie Kemper actually from Unbreakable Kimmy Schmel, the first show, un- show I did. Respect. Yeah, and that's sort of it's it's not multi-camera in style because it's very much a single-camera show. But, but it's, it's broad; it can be multi-camera in tone. Yeah. And I, I was saying, you, you know, like I, I ran into her and I said, well, what were like your longest days on the show? She said, well, we did occasionally in, like 16 hours. And I don't think that ever really happens very often on multicams. 16 hours? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, on the longest days, I mean, I think, I think I've never done a true traditional multicam. Mm-hmm. But I think the longest days
1: are... There's only one long day. Yeah, and that's tape day, which is usually Friday. Yeah, it depends on how many studios are are doing multi-camera shows at that particular year or Mm -hmm. season um, and have to get out so that the other... You know, Multicam can come in, so it can be Monday through Friday, or it could be, like, Wednesday through Tuesday. Yeah. Um, which I think is what Seinfeld was, because it was a new show. Yeah. So it wasn't a, you know, full week, so they had the weekend to be off, because I remember, I'll tell you a little secret. Yeah? Jerry asked me out. He did? Did you say yes? <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't you go. You couldn't? Because um, I happened to have a date with the person who turned, ended up being my husband.
0: Oh, you could. <laughs> You could own <laughs> but, you know, several buildings oh, right now. I,
1: I had this little little birdie inside saying to me, "You know what? His comedy is observational. You might wind up on stage. Oh, you know, hey, with something personal that you've done with to him, with him, whatever." And I was just like, "I just don't think I can." Trust oh. that. You know? Oh, so I you have much, you
0: have much more foresight than I do. That's that's impressive. I mean, he
1: seems like a really moral guy, and I yeah. doubt that he would, you know, ever gossip or say anything direct like that. But Yeah, I don't know.
0: yeah. I don't know. Oh, that's so – that's exciting. That That's, <laughs> exciting.
1: that's, that's, that's something you – Well, I did hear from my girlfriend who did go out with him that he was a very good kisser. So. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, he was – yeah. I kind of missed out on that, but <laughs> – But, yeah, I mean, but I think
0: one of the things that I think we don't we, – we, we don't appreciate enough nowadays is that the multi-camera, this feeling of we lose a lot of community when we watch TV shows now. Hmm. I think we watch everything in such an insular fashion. I'm certainly guilty of this. That, you know, Netflix is designed to be watched on your computer or, you know, if you might hook it up to your TV. But it's not typically a group viewing experience. No. And I think multi-camera comedy, even if you're sitting by yourself watching it, the nice thing about it is that to hear the sound of the laughter, yeah. like either, either from a can or... Or a live audience. We always prefer a live audience. It's yeah. the same thing. Yeah. You know, canned laughter is fine, but it's like canned vegetables. They're good for you, but it's better if you get them fresh. <laughs> so
1: uh, From the Salinas Valley.
0: <laughs> we tied it up. That's called a
1: callback, by the way. Right? Hey, there we go. <laughs> oh, yay.
0: Okay. So I really want to close with you are a sitcom and coach primarily. Yes. And there are a lot of acting coaches. hmm and there are a lot of drama coaches but there are not many who specialize in comedy in in, yeah. in, in comedy and yeah. in, and particularly in sitcoms because yeah. I, correct me if i'm wrong the byline of your business is margaret reed your sitcom and drama coach yes i can't think of another person in 2019 who has sitcom coach and coach in the same byline
1: yes well so
0: i think you're holding down the fort for the art form so can I ask you what the sitcom means to you in its traditional form?
1: What sitcom means? Well, like you said, it's situation comedy. That's yes. what it stands for. A lot of people don't know that. In the heart. Uh, in the heart. <laughs> yes. Yes. It
0: does. Yes. Sitcom stands for situation comedy.
1: Right. So it's about, as, as you watch the show, you remember your sitcoms that you've seen on TV, it's contained. There's a beginning, middle, and end. And, you know, yes, the characters go on the next week, but the story itself has a beginning, middle, and end, and there's usually some kind of moral or, you know, lesson that you learn during the show. And I just, uh, I love the format, but it's also, my business, I specialize in teaching script analysis, comedy script analysis, because I believe that we need to honor our writers, and we need to start with their hard, hard, hard work of looking at every period and exclamation point and comma and the exact yeah. word that comes, you know, at the exact right time. It's a very difficult job. Sure, and I think yeah. it's up to us as as actors to honor their writing, as opposed to other forms that are more improvisational or, you know, you can add an um or an ah or an eh. Uh, well, particularly,
0: but, um, you know, in a multi-camera where, you know, there's, you know, I don't know if you've, if any of our listeners are aware of this, but there is something called the rule of threes. Yes, pattern which of three. Which is that a joke usually builds on the, and the laugh usually comes, the punchline comes on the third point
1: mm-hmm. of the line. That's one kind of joke,
0: That's yeah. One kind of joke. Yeah. And I think, but I think with a lot of things like that and aspects of that part of writing, it's especially important to honor the writing mm-hmm. because if, if you say an and instead of a but it's a whole different thing. It can it can truly alter the rhythm or kill the or and possibly kill the laugh.
1: Yeah. And, and comedy's then, all about rhythm. Yeah. And so if you add a word or you delete a word, it's gonna be a completely different rhythm. So that's the kind of thing that we work on um, in my classes and also with my coaching, which I do online and internationally. I have yeah. clients in Russia and, you know, all over the world. So it's I really enjoy it because I love seeing the light bulb go off in people's on top of people's head, going, "Oh, I hadn't thought of that before. Oh, that's what I do, and I need to correct." Or, "Yeah, oh, I'm doing that right now." And you know, so it's really fun, and it's 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 mainly focused on comedy, but I also coach drama as well. Of course, well, because you
0: you you're so versed in both. But I truly believe, and you're going to hear me hammer this point home in maybe not every episode, but all funny people have. Deep wells of feeling. Okay, and <laughs> drama. And drama. So it is. Outside. It's all. It's all about real life. Pain. And it's pain. It's all about pain. It's all about. Oh, it's, oh God! Everything is about pain. <laughs> is <that> oh, funny? <laughs> it is so funny. Oh goodness. Well, so I want to close with what is your favorite sitcom joke?
1: oh, <laughs> what?
0: Can you think of a favorite joke?
1: Oh my god, on the way home, I'm sure I'm going to be able to think of it. Okay, I didn't An mean to. An actual joke? Yeah. I mean, the first thing that popped into my head was watching Jerry Seinfeld on stage. Yeah. I love his observational humor and just how he gets a kick out of out of what he well, comes out of his head, you know, and I love watching people like that. Like Matthew Broderick has the same kind of thing. It's like he's like He's just getting the kick out of doing it. <laughs> oh, I love it.
0: Oh, exactly. Yeah. No. It's so no. Well, it's, it's important joke. to watch people having fun. Yeah. So with that in mind, I think we should close on out and say, sing a song and sing a song. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm so glad we had this time together. Just to have a laugh or sing a song. My and friend. but I think we're gonna have to stop because I'm gonna have to. We'll have to pay for the rights for this.
1: Who doesn't love Lucy?